0: Hi, and welcome to the Part 3 With Me podcast. The show that helps Part 3 students jumpstart into their careers as qualified architects and also to provide refresher episodes for practicing architects. I am your host, Maria Scudari, And this week, we will be talking about claims uh, in general. And next week, I will be covering loss and expense claims. So today's episode covers PC1, PC3, and PC5 of the Part 3 criteria. So as we all know, construction projects come with complexities and a number of uncertainties. So given their length, um, there are bound to be a number of changes throughout the process of a project. And however accurate the authors of the construction contract are, there is always the small possibility that an issue may arise that falls outside of the scope um, of the contract. So when a disruptive event occurs under the contract, for example because of a delay to provide the design information to the contractor on time, the contractor as a result will incur a loss and will seek reimbursement under the contract. So under such a scenario, the document produced to encourage the client to reimburse the contractor for the losses is known as a claim. So the term claim can be used to describe two different types of requests, one of which is an application for reimbursement of direct loss expense and or damage that arises from a clause in the contract and that creates such an entitlement And the second is a claim for damages arising from a breach or a series of breaches of the contract conditions. So what are some common reasons for claims to arise? There are typically three main reasons for the submission of claims. The first and most common being that uh, genuine grounds for a claim have arisen, but due to a lack of sufficient records, the claim can't be proved which typically happens if a contractor, for example, acted on oral instructions or from their own initiative, believing it's for the best uh, interest of the project. Or another instance maybe if the contractor has been issued with um, documented instructions or been granted extensions of time, but the contractor failed to keep uh, records of the resulting losses. So in either scenario, the claim will be considered weak, Uh, due to the lack of supporting information and the claimant may have to resort to submitting an unparticularized global or rolled up claim. The second reason for a claim is that the contractor has genuinely incurred a loss on the project and seeks to have those losses reimbursed. In some occasions, the contractor won't be certain why these losses have arisen, but they will be certain they didn't cause them. For example, due to inadequate supply of labour and materials, or due to price inflation on labour, materials and contractors, which is what we are currently seeing in the market. So the contractor will have to demonstrate these losses occurred uh, due to acts or omissions of the client, but these cases typically lead in failed claims. And the third reason for the submission of a claim is known as a speculative claim whereby a strong contractor may find weakness in an architect or employer's representative and sees it as an opportunity to pressure them into granting instructions and extensions of time. So in each of these claim uh, cases, the claimant's intention is to improve their financial position beyond what is contractually and legally supported. Of course, claims tend to rise due to conflict between parties which can easily add uh, 20% or more to a project's final cost. So how can conflicts and claims be avoided in the first place? Some common reasons for conflict tend to rise due to uh, proceeding on a design that is incomplete or needs significant changes, or it can be because they tended too early in the design process, Uh, or there's been a poor choice of tenderers and um, a selection of a successful bidder, or using an inappropriate standard form of contract or bespoke contract, uh, or potentially refusing to implement or comply with design freeze dates, uh, or even refusing to allow a reasonable time for completion. So to avoid claim and conflicts arising from the common situations just mentioned, it is wise and more economical to allow contractors to complete the contract works as planned and retrofit changes later on um, on a fixed price quotation. When it comes to contract conflicts, to avoid uh, such situations leading to conflict, it is best to seek legal advice when amendments to the contract wording are required to preempt a claim from rising. And generally to avoid any of the scenarios mentioned from occurring that would lead to a claim. Early design completion should be aimed for along with an agreed uh, design freeze date, minimal changes as much as possible, tight administration control, realistic time scales for completion, uh, constant valuation of changes as the works occur and prompt resolution of disputes. We all know this tends to never happen due to the unpredictability of projects, But as architects, we can aim to guide the project down this path as much as we can in exercising reasonable skill and care. So what is the process when a claim is received? Let's start with claims received under contract. So most uh, standard JCT building contracts and other forms enable contractors to be reimbursed under the contract for time and money lost due to delay and disruption And majority of contracts will typically define the circumstances in which um, money and time claims can be made by the contractor. So a typical wording example within the contract for money loss will be stated as loss and or expense, which as a term covers the money lost that ought to have been received and the expenditure of extra money not intended for. For example, under the JCT standard building contract, the contractor will be able to recover direct loss and um, or expense if the works were impacted due to what's described within the contract as relevant matters uh, or relevant events. I would advise you to refer to the JCT uh, building contract for a breakdown of the relevant events or to listen to episode 33. So under such circumstance, the contractor would typically rely on the contract terms to raise their claim and for it to be successful as long as the contract was properly administered and worded from the beginning. Then we have uh, claims made for breach of contract. So as mentioned in the beginning of the episode, contracts will never be able to capture every single event arising uh, that may occur under the contract. And as a result, contractors may encounter difficulties that are not listed as relevant events or matters. So in such cases there are two scenarios. The first one is the parties to the contract agree to amend the contract between them to manage and or resolve the issue or they do nothing and wait for a claim that the contract has been breached. Examples of breaches of contract can include um, the architect refusing to change the completion date or the architect refusing to certify appropriately uh, and so on. So if the contractor successfully proves that a failure isn't covered by the contract, then it stands a chance to be considered under the general law. Uh, And then we have intermingled claims, which is the process of pursuing claims under the contract and extra contractual claims separately. So these are two different uh, processes. So, for example, a contractor claimed that, one, they had late possession of the site. Two, that significant changes were made after installation had taken place. Then three, that drawings were delivered late. Four, that instruction and variations uh, were issued and concluded. Five, extensions of time were not granted. And six, the contractor's employment was terminated. So under such a scenario, some of the events um, listed under two to four, two, three, and four would fall under relevant events, but others wouldn't, such as one and five, which is late possession of site and extensions of time were not granted. So the, and the employment termination could have been resolved under the contract conditions, but say that the contractor didn't accept this, this would lead to the case ending up at litigation when it could have been resolved without involving the courts and saving everyone both time and money. So every uh, method should be made to permit claims to fall under the contract terms so they can be ascertained under the control of the architect and the quantity surveyor to avoid um, third party involvement. So ideally you would like although it's not always the case to have claims um, that are covered by the contract. Now let's look at the claimant's obligations and liabilities. This can potentially be the contractor. So first and foremost, the claimant must specify their claim sufficiently to allow the respondent to understand the case and to enable them to answer appropriately. So they must provide sufficient detail in the points of claim, to enable the respondent to defend their position and to prove they have been uh, wronged, resulting in loss and damage. And the claimant is expected to prove the financial implications of the damage by using uh, reasonable calculations. So firstly, the claimant must show that there is a legally binding contract between the parties, which creates rights and obligations. And then the claimant must demonstrate that the contract terms and conditions give rise to an obligation or duty on the part of the respondent which has been breached. In essence, the claimant just needs to demonstrate that whatever they are bringing claim to has been listed in the contract as something that the um, respondent should have done in the first place, that it was part of their original obligations and Uh, liabilities. So if it is established that the respondent has certain obligations to the claimant under the terms of the contract, then the claimant must show which of these obligations were breached, when they have been breached and how. So then the contractor must show that some financial loss has been incurred so they can recover their losses or to avoid financial penalties This excludes uh, liquidated damages which are agreed and stated in the contract at the start. So once the obligation breach and financial damage have both been determined, then the claimant will need to establish that the loss had incurred due to the breach uh, to be able to claim. So, So they have to show that the respondent breached their obligations to be able to claim from them. For example, if a contractor can link their losses to individual causes, and if they can prove an outstanding financial loss, the courts may allow some money if it's uh, convinced that the losses arose from a complex interaction of events which can't be separated. So what effect do claims have financially to the project? So construction projects have a final account when they reach completion And any reimbursable costs incurred by the contractor can be recovered by the final account or through a loss and expense claim. So the final account consists of the contract price, any adjustments for extra or reduced works, any adjustments of prime cost and provisional sums, an evaluation of day work and an evaluation of the consequences of price escalation on materials, plant and labor So these items are typically the source for many disputes, as there may be differences in opinion on the perceived evaluation for extra work or day work. So let's look at some of these items that make up the final account, starting with adjustments for extra or reduced works, most commonly known as variations. So where the instructed work is to be valued by measurement, the contractor will have to show and argue that the characteristics of the work are different to what they were expected to carry out, which may also result in extra timing required, uh, and so on. And as a result, they will be able to use rates found in the contract documents, which will most probably be higher than their initial competitive tender price. So to be able to be reimbursed for these additional works, the contractor must make sure that all items, as well as preliminary costs and overheads, are incorporated into the variation account. So for items not covered in the variation account, they will be covered under the loss and expense claim. Then if the work can't be valued by measurement, then the day work rate is added to the contract to be used to value the labor, plant and materials on a reimbursable basis. So reasonably, most employers don't like this arrangement as they bear the risk of the contractor's time and cost, and they have no control over either. So a potential way to monitor this is if the contract administrator demands uh, day worksheets so they can check them against their own records to make sure the contractor is working efficiently. So if the contractor just works slowly on purpose to make up some extra time and money, uh, then... Unless monitored, the employer won't be able to prove this and they will have to pay. And then the third item is we when we have the evaluation of the consequences of price escalation. So price escalation clauses in contracts allow contractors to seek reimbursement for the inflationary price increases affecting their costs uh, during the construction period. So this can be achieved either through the allowance of a fixed price addition to the contract price or the employer may adjust uh, the tender base date prices to reflect the relevant current period that the project is being carried out under. So these are the most common methods in establishing the final account when reimbursable costs arise. So that covers generally um, claims. And next week I will be covering loss and expense claims. So join me then for more uh, information on that. And to sum up what I discussed today, claims can be made under contract clauses. And the term claim can be used in two different types of uh, requests, which is an application for reimbursement of direct loss, expense and or damage arising from a clause in the contract. And the second is a claim for damages arising from a breach or a series of breaches of the contract conditions. Then a fully evidenced claim that establishes cause and effect and quantifies the losses for each event will probably succeed. The most common reasons for submission of claims include grounds for a claim uh, have risen due to a lack of sufficient records. Uh, Then the claim will not be able to be proved. Uh, And it will be considered weak and the claimant may have to resort to submitting an unparticularized global or rolled up claim. The second reason for a claim is that the contractor has incurred a loss on the project and seeks to have those losses reimbursed. And the third reason is known as a speculative claim. So there are three processes when a claim is received, which is claims under contract, claims made for breach of contract and intermingled claims. And lastly, the effect claims have financially on a project is on the final account or through the loss and expense claim, which I will cover in next week's episode. As always, I like to provide you guys with a scenario to put what I just went through into context. So in today's scenario, we, uh, let's say we have a client um, that uh, owns um, a barn and they want to do a barn conversion job but they have bought two plots next to each other. So we're doing one uh, planning application for one of the plots and a former employee did the second application outside of the office for the same client. So the tricky thing with these uh, applications is that it is um, placed on a narrow country road and the client is concerned that the sight lines can't be achieved because of the bend of that narrow road. And the minimum requirement standard from the local planning authority is 45 meters. Now, the other tricky thing is that uh, because the one of the applications were done by the other employee, we don't know where we stand in terms of indemnity insurance because of that. And when it comes to the sight lines, um, whoever visited the site in the first place didn't properly check uh, whether the 45 meter sight lines were achievable. So the practice has gone to an external planning consultant seeking for some advice on this technical issue. But in the meantime, uh, we are required to prepare a memo, setting out what has happened and suggesting the course of action Uh, open to the practice and what the likely repercussions might be uh, because of the former employee not checking the sight lines properly and also what this means for the practice. And then secondly, you are expected to draft a letter to the client providing them with an explanation and next steps. So you would start with the first point of writing a memo to your manager setting out what happened in our course of action. So you can start by saying that when we put the planning drawings together for the submission, um, we're not completely certain whether within the planning package, the drawings which indicate the available sight lines um, at both locations of the junctions of the access to the site with the highway was included on those drawings. And the former employee was responsible for the sightline information. So we're not very clear as to the actions and information he had produced and what he obtained from serving the site at the time. So since the planners have placed, um, for the site lines item to be discharged prior to finalizing the works, They will possibly be requiring further evidence on the sight lines, access, and a survey indicating our proposal and the achieved sight lines from it. So, in such a case, we can recommend that um, we should carry out a survey and determine that the sight lines are less than the 45 metres required by the local authority. Uh, At that Case we would have a few options we can approach to resolve this. So we can determine whether the client has control over the site uh, ditch or the heavy vegetation which restricts visibility and have those removed to help with the visibility. Uh, If this is not a problem, then there is a possibility of reducing the sight lines by providing that 85% of the vehicles passing the site travel slower than the legal speed limit in order to achieve reduced uh, sight lines, which requires undertaking a speed survey. So such a survey will require recording about 200 vehicles, 100 vehicles traveling in both directions to ascertain the appropriate design speed for the highway, and then also the precise level of visibility required, So we should uh, seek the advice of a highways consultant to assist in finding a solution to the sight lines. So then you can continue to say to your manager that given the other employee no longer works for the practice. And since it is a private job and it was under their PI uh, cover at the time, uh, given only two years have passed, the client can still place a claim against them for breach of duty of care and diligence. And given they had an appointment with the client underhand, this keeps them liable for the project under a limitation period of six years. So given they kept a run of cover of PI for the project, they should be able to run the process through their insurance company. And then we can highlight to our manager saying that we believe that our practice has a set level of PI cover for all our projects. And given this is approximately a £120,000 job, we believe we should at least have the minimum standard of PI cover set by the ARB, which is £250,000. So any claims possibly made against us from the client uh, for this item with the sight lines, we should initially try and resolve this in-house through our in-house dispute procedure But at the same time, we should also inform our insurers of uh, this case uh, in case it ends up going through adjudication or mediation uh, so our PI uh, insurers can cover us for such a claim. So that covers your note to uh, your manager. Then we would write uh, a letter to the client, uh, firstly apologizing about the problem that has arisen regarding the sight lines and relating to the road entering the site. And we can write to reassure them that we are currently investigating the matter. And we will go through all of our correspondence if we have any exchange of information with the planning authority informing us of any vital points we may need to consider. And to assist in the matter, we have also asked for some technical advice when it comes to the sight lines from a planning consultant to assist us in resolving this issue as soon as possible. And then we can reassure them that once we have further information on the matter, we will write again to inform them of the latest updates. And that should be a good follow-up process to ensure that you uh, prevent any future claims from the client, and to show that you have acted uh, reasonably and with honesty and integrity hopefully removing any claims that might have arisen from that process. And that concludes today's episode. Remember to join me next week for more on loss and expense claims. If you would like to get in contact with me, please feel free to email me on the address provided in the show notes. Thank you for listening. This is an educational show aimed at supporting the future generation of architects. The information, opinions and recommendations presented in this podcast are for general information only and any reliance on the information provided in this podcast is done at your own risk. Please join me next week for some more part three with me time.